Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's another double box edition of the Hub of Champions with your host, Shukri Wrights. If you're watching on YouTube or anywhere else, you can see I have another guest, a great guest on the Hub of Champions podcast. For those of you listening across on um, podcast and iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast, I appreciate you as always. I am joined by a fable member of Patriots Dynasty 1.0. If you're a Patriots fan, you sure as hell should know who I'm about to bring onto the pod. Three-time Super Bowl champion, former NFL linebacker Matt Chatham, who used to be on Nesson, very well known in New England. He joins the pod. Matt, thank you for hopping on on this Friday night. And because of you, I'm now cooking barbecue wings in the <laughs> oven as we record this podcast. True yeah, story, yeah. by the way. Welcome to yeah, the pod. Yeah. Ah, I'm glad to be here. I, we, we got talking a little off air about food, and now my, my mind's elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about barbecue right now. I can, I, I, I can yeah. actually smell it coming up. I'm coming up the stairs in my house. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, my, my goodness. Like, seriously, what, what a time for you to hop on the pod, getting ready for yeah. Super Bowl 58 in, yeah. in about nine days. And... And like everything that has gone on, um, in, as it pertains to um, the Patriots, which we'll get to in just a moment. But as someone who has played in three Super Bowls, Super Bowl thirty six, Super Bowl thirty eight, and Super Bowl thirty nine, yeah, what was that time period like for you as you were getting ready to play um, in in the biggest game of your life? Um, I mean, let's face it, I mean, Super Bowl. I mean, yeah. I, I've heard many NFL players say the Super Bowl is the biggest game that you ever play in your life and so forth. And you've done it three times in, in, in your NFL career. What is that period like for you? So they're distinct memories. And I have to kind of uh, be careful with this because sure. we're really, really lucky, fortunate, whatever, uh, that we got the second and third chance, right? Because mm. the first one was such a... It was an unusual one. And I don't think anyone that's ever gotten to play in one of these things had it as we did other than the Rams. Uh, because we didn't get the extra week. So, you know, that was the 9-11 year in, yes. in 2001. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a pause week in the season. So everything was set back. So when we won the AFC Championship game in Pittsburgh, um, we were, you know, partying in the locker room, booze on the plane, you know, touchdown in Foxborough. And wow. we were basically right back into the meeting room uh, yeah. to plan, basically run home to get your stuff, pack a bag, and we're going to New Orleans. So it was a whirlwind. And, I mean, you add into the fact that everything was truncated and shortened and we had to be down there in a minute. Uh, and then add in the fact that we weren't favorites. You know, it's not like we were yeah. sitting there in October, November, December planning and dreaming of doing this. It, mm -hmm. it really – we caught steam late, you know, and it's sort of a, whoa, we did this, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason I always say that when people ask about the experience um, – yeah. It's like a shame to say how little of it I remember. You know, like you know, it's, and I, it's pathetic, but anecdotes. Mm -hmm. You know, night out on Monday night or Tuesday, whatever it was. Stuff from sort of media day. Uh, yeah, of course, a lot, handful of plays and stuff from the game. Uh, but it's not as like I didn't do as good of a job of just you know recording it and stamping it in stone and really soaking it all in. And so. When we weren't good enough, we weren't even a playoff team that actually we were borderline in, in 02. And then we get to go back in 03 and it's like, man, I am every little corny thing, you know, that you kind of like, ah, I don't need to do that. You know, like everything, every memorabilia piece, every uh, every little family outreach thing, everything going on with Super Bowl week. 
second and third time around, I mean, I was the first one in line. <laughs> so it's, it's, you, you want to have as much fun with it as you can. But, uh, I mean, it is. It's just once-in-a-lifetime memory. So a, a super quick one. Um, people were actually uh, texting me – or, I'm sorry, tweeting at me about this the other day because uh, mm-hmm. I was tweeting about the, uh, the We Are the World documentary on uh, the doc yeah. on Netflix. And yep. uh, uh, Lionel Richie uh, – so this is after the second Super Bowl, the one in Houston – Yep, and I mean, the, the regular lineup for, for entertainment, it was at the International Hotel. I don't think it's called that anymore, but gorgeous place. That's where the post party is. Uh, Black Eyed Peas at the time, uh, Toby Keith, and then Aerosmith. So that was the sort of the Ooh. three as you came in. So pretty solid, big names, you know, at least around yeah. the time. But that was sort of like the pre-drinks time, right? So then mm-hmm. I got friends from college and high school back, people from my wedding, uh, in addition to family, because like family only the first year. And so mm-hmm. the second time I had a little more of my friends with me, and, you know, got to do that and kind of go up on stage. I think it was Mike Vrabel and Larry Izzo and myself were up on stage for Loving an Elevator uh, with Aerosmith. So anyway, like the, the, point of the, the point of the story was the, the party itself was kind of cool. But then as night goes long, cigars and drinks, and it gets to be 2 and 3 a.m. and kind of stuff, Lionel Richie had a little room uh, off the main ballroom. And it was just kind of like a little rumor, hey, you know, I heard Lionel Richie here is here. And there was a piano that they had mm. uh, rolled in. So there's, I mean, a room m- not much bigger than the, my office here at my house. Mm. And it was just a piano, wow. Lionel, and about five or six of us. And it was, you know, the morning after the Super Bowl, half in the bag, happiest day of your life kind of thing. And he's playing easy. <laughs> uh, like it's just talk about the song choice <laughs> yes, exactly. yeah so all i'm saying is like i yeah. you know a little bit of cool stuff with snoop and all the different kind of things that happened the very first one i mm. was like the second time around i'm like i'm doing every inch of it like you know like i'm not gonna not i'm not gonna pass any of this stuff by so it's it just little stuff like that actually sticks in my memory as much as this play and that play kind of thing yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm in, I'm already enjoying the, the storytelling. You talk, you talk <laughs> about like the after party um, that happened after Super Bowl 38 against Carolina, yeah. um, and and I, I want to go back to the first one because yeah. um, you mentioned like that was the that was that one was the special one in terms of like it was right after it was right after 9 11. It was yeah. about five months after 9 11 to be exact, and and walk us through the decision to come out as a team and the 01 Patriots were the first team to do that. And you see that how that's become like a a tradition, a tradition in every Super Bowl since, but the 01 Patriots were the first team to decide to come out as a team as a whole during Super Bowl introductions. Walk us through the decision process and what went, what went into it. I really wish there was some sort of romanticized version of this story where, you know, we had the, the the speech and the captain stood up and said we're going to do this it, it yeah. kind of happened a little more organically and i think willie mcginnis was always one of the strongest voices in our locker room one of our biggest leaders you know willie's 55 uh 56 and 57 the two lockers that would have been between us are both retired uh mm. so uh, he and i were the six years i was here is right next to willie willie kind of runs things in that locker room you know first overall picker you know uh first round pick years and years ago uh mm. and kind of was just like top dog and I, I, my recollection and mine might not match others, but that it was sort of more of a, you know, late season as things started rolling. Hey, we're not doing that. You know, like mm-hmm. we're not, we, we don't need to do the announcement thing. We should just go together. But it wasn't like some, you know, like 
music playing in the background and some speech, you know, we're going to do another <laughs> Like, it, it was really more like, nah, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're a bunch of, you know, guys yeah. are not expecting to do one. Well, we're just going to do it together. And, and I, again, it's not as if Saturday night before the Super Bowl at the hotel, we all got together today. We're going to, like, it's just, you got to the edge of that bubble, like we always do. And you kind of look around and go, no, no. And, you know, and that's, that's just kind of how they ha- decided to handle it. And, you know, as a young guy on that team, just fall in line, baby. <laughs> <laughs> like when you arrived in 2000, you you are a rookie. Yeah. Belichick's also his first year, the now former head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick. Yeah. His first year in New England as the head coach of the Patriots. Mm-hmm. And and obviously the big story still is right now. We're still dealing with like the smolderings, if you will, of Bill Belichick no longer being the head coach and general manager of the New England Patriots after 24 yeah. years, yeah, which well. and which is which is really still it's still hard to believe because like I mean a quarter of a century that's pretty much an entire generation that's all right. that's all that fans have ever known. Right. But you were there in 2000 when when that when everything began not in terms of just the winning but obviously that first year it, I mean it was it, it was a it was a tough year record wise but right. a foundation began to be laid out. What do you remember from your rookie year in terms of Bill Belichick installing the, the culture and and trying to implement a system in which that would lead to future success? Yeah, I mean, I think the foundation idea is a really good way to way to frame this because uh, you know it's a five and eleven year. We weren't very good in two thousand, uh, and I've heard this story. I'm not gonna. I'm not sources guy. I'm not a journalist. Yeah. Not that I ever was, but uh, <laughs> I, let's just put it. Let's just put it this way. Uh, I. I've had conversations all the way up and down sort of the, the organization about sort of what 2000 was, what it looks mm. like in the review and what they were thinking and what was going down. Um, mm. You know, they, they knew the team they took over was a, uh, an incomplete team. Right. And that they yeah. knew that they had, and this happens a lot. It's not like it was unique to the Patriots, but mm. new staff comes in, you know, sort of replacing the old staff, knowing, you know, X percent of these guys are our kind of guys. Some of them are, mm. we would have never drafted or signed them. Uh, yeah. And there's an attrition that happens. That's just kind of natural. But because it was a bad team, um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of November, December football. And I ended up on IR and missed the last you know, few games or whatever that season, actually. Uh, J.R. Redmond, old J.R. Redmond, uh, our running back uh, in that same draft class of 2000, uh, kicked me in the back of the calf in a, in like a, in a, in a, in a practice. I was blocking mm. for J.R. and he ran on my back and got my calf. So I did miss a few games there at the end. But my, my point of it is, as you got into sort of the, the, the stretch, right, the November, December, it became a lot about, like, who wants to be on this team, you know? And it's sort of uh, – and that's what it is. It's like you're being very, very much physically challenged with what is kind of known around the league to be one of the harder, longer practices and, and sort of the weekly schedule that anyone has. And also it's mental anguish. Like, you know, we stink, you know, we're, but there's a lot of really good players in the room, right? So it's a bad mm-hmm. team but with some good players, and a lot of good players. So I think part of that was just like, okay, who who wants to be a part of this? And it's, you know, there's a, this happens a lot of times. It's not just the Patriots thing. Other yeah. NFL locker rooms I've been in with Jets or the stuff early on as a rookie with the Rams, like you, you know, not everyone's always on board. <laughs> you know, you have 53 guys and some people are on under contract and some people are looking around going, screw this, you know. And I think part of what 2000 was about was basically – who wants to be here Who and how badly do they want to be here? And are they really a part of this? And if you're not cool, great. You know, that's what free agency is for. And, 
and waivers and all those kinds of things. There's there's 31 other places you can play, but uh, I really think uh, there's a there's a bond between the the group of us that survived 2000 <laughs> and, re- <laughs> and remained on 01 and two and three and four. You know that 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 because we remember, you know, 2000 was was rough and it was it was mm-hmm. you were being challenged. You were being challenged every day, and trust me, there were. There were exits all over the place that you could have gotten off if you don't want to do. Uh, but the guys that were around, they they wanted to be there. Like, how did Bill Belichick challenge and yet inspire the guys that would end up becoming corner pieces of, of the of that 01, 03, 04 teams? You know, like with the likes of you mentioned Willie McGinnis. I think I'm thinking of Ty Law as well as Rodney Harrison, um, Teddy Bruschi, like because we know that Bill Belichick, his calling card has always been defense. We saw it in the, in the 80s, in the early 90s with those great Giants teams that won the Super Bowl in 86 and 90. He comes to New England. He has solid um, on defensive pieces. Some hadn't arrived just yet, but there were pieces that were there, including yourself. And you mentioned on um, Willie McGinnis and, and Teddy Bruschi, who came in in, in 96. Um like what was like what was his philosophy when it came to the style of defense that the Patriots played in the early two thousands and how that was able to carry over um, year to year in terms of the defensive success of the team experience? So you know when we talk about that the especially the 01 version the version when we got really good like you have to I mean it, it, it's easy to talk about Richard Seymour that they nail and you know sort of their big first draft pick at least in for the 01 year and it's like wow that they they drafted a hall of famer you know I'm not saying yeah. we knew that that day but like this is this is an all pro type guy uh, and you had Willie who was that caliber of player as well and Bruski'd been there for a bit and was a leader on the team and everyone knew Ty was a stud and to Bucky Jones was just a you know a, a phenom a freak he can play he's a corner but he's almost as big as some of the linebackers and he can play in the back end like you know he's he and and lawyer is a huge personality on the team so you kind of know there's a bunch of dudes and but again all those guys were a part of that 2000 group as well i think really bills and scott and scott pioli as well Mm -hmm. filling in the holes of what really would round that thing out right uh, and, and it's really what made the one group great. I mean, bringing in like an Anthony Pleasant, uh, Bobby Hamilton it was just one of those guys that everyone knew about in the league that was just always super consistent, would win his block every time, wasn't going to get 10 sacks, wasn't going to have a bunch of tackles for loss. But like adding that, adding uh, Roman Pfeiffer, you know, mm. adding T-Buck, Terrell Buckley, like that was just a piece together group that was kind of like two thirds of the way there and some studs, but they rounded it out. And I think, you know, there was the issue with Andy Katzenmoyer who had all those uh, problems with his neck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was highly drafted, had a real good year in 99, I believe it was. And then the injury stuff was creeping up with his neck at the time when Bill was taking over. And so, you know, Brewski's transitioning inside and Roman is – played, I don't know, like 10 or 11 years at that time and had yet yet to play in like a playoff game. Um, so it was, it's just really those four or five really, really savvy moves that rounded that thing out because, you know, like, like I mentioned, it was those other six names we mentioned were also there in 2000, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like a Brandon Mitchell, I, I forgot about Brandon, but like, you know, just kind of, you know, the starter group of guys that were super integral but aren't that like four or five top names you know played a huge part in in sort of getting it over the hump 
Mike Vrabel too. Should have mentioned Mike, Mike Vrabel. Another Mike Vrabel. Mike Vrabel. Like I mean, my goodness. Like you, I, when I think of Mike Vrabel, I think of the man who, and, I, and I'm sure he, he obviously wasn't the only on Patriots to do this, but the man who could really play both, both sides of the ball. I mean, the way that he would be utilized in the red zone on, on certain plays, um, and, and and so forth. I just found I found it to be really, um, amazing, but. The historian in me is is genuinely curious because I wish to have been a fly in the wall. I was I'm, I was very young when the Patriots run began in in, in two thousand one, and for years I would watch in admiration, but really out of curiosity. And I can't think of anyone better to, than to ask you this particular question: What made Bill Belichick such? a great coach in terms of his schemes and his ability to scheme um, defenses and plays and just being extremely prepared and being, and being aware of, of like when to send um, certain personnel out in certain situations in the game, but what made him special? I, I think I said this in a number of forums over the years, especially the, the dozen years with Ness and it, you know, it just would come up in different formats, but mm. I think, I think there are a lot of really good defensive coaches in the NFL, obviously, right? There's a lot of guys that really know their stuff. I mean, shoot, look at what Kansas City's done this year. I mean, mm -hmm. we'll talk about the quarterback all the time, but, like, that's a really, really – that's a defensively led team. I believe they're second overall in points per game with an offense that's 15. Mm -hmm. So that's – that's so my point is, though, that you can go around the NFL and find some really, really good defensive coordinators, really good defensive minds, guys that can put you in a really good scheme. Uh, you can go around the NFL in the media component of this uh, from from my my prior life, and every single week in every single market and every single major publication and every single you know podcast now and a radio station, somebody's got their keys to the game. Somebody's got their <laughs> somebody's got their things to watch, and somebody's got the these. This is going to be the most important matchup. So, yeah. And the point of that is. There's 100 people that are going to have eyes on it. You know, scouting departments, too. You know, they're all going to have a look, right? And they're mm -hmm. all going to make their little list. And Bill's greatest gift is that his list is always the right one. And it's really easy to make things that sound right. Like, oh, the matchup between, you know, blitz pickup between this really good middle linebacker and the fullback, every every player, the running back, and or or how are they going to handle their pressures? Or, you know, some something that sounds football-y and sounds right that you can write a column and it's one of your bullets and hey, who's going to dispute that? But when you watch it back, was that really what drove the difference in the game? And that was always the thing that Bill's like, you know, and, and you, granted, you know, my six years there early before I went on to the Jets, you could talk this to, you know, about this to any of the groups that came after, you know, multiple groups of guys mm -hmm. uh, for those many years after. The thing they'll always say is like, damn, we come in on Monday. It's like, everything he said was right. <laughs> like, like, you know, and, <laughs> And that's and that's that's really the gift. It's not that he had some magic scheme. It's not that you know he called the perfect play at the perfect time. It's just that the NFL is complex. NFL offenses are complex. Mm -hmm. You have to really learn to beat a team. What makes them tick and what's doable for you to take away that'll actually drive the difference. So mm -hmm. you don't want you know you don't want to, we got to hold them to under a hundred yards rushing. Like, well, is that is that really that big of a deal? Um, you know, there's his, his gift to sort of put a bow on this is just to figure out what those few things really are and build a scheme around that and know that you can't take away everything. Right. And it's just mm -hmm. that, what is that one thing that will be right when we come in here on Monday? And the flip side of that is when we lose, he's really good at saying, here's those eight plays. See, 
you know, <laughs> that's just kind of how it works. <laughs> so I, I think that's that's what guys are most often most impressed with, Bill, um, because it, you know, defensive football is not about oh, we had this wild adjustment on cover four that works so good, and can you believe we put you know our slot corner on their boundary corner or boundary receiver, and wow, what a great difference! I mean, it's a little bit of that. But it's really more honing on the components that you cannot let them major in and then, you know, just sort of uh, mind and fundamentals after that. And, and Bill was just one of the best teachers ever. He's a doctorate many times over in that world. When you look at what Bill Belichick has been accomplished throughout his time as head coach of the New England Patriots, and and you look at from the time that you were there, you you were there um, during the first part of the dynasty in the early 2000s. And and, and like from afar and as part of the media, you you are also able to share your perspective. Um, well, what what the what the television audience in in New England on on Nesson for many years. Um, and from a from a fan perspective, we were able to like to, to see like okay the, the X's and O's like okay like this is what this is what was happening this is what the, the page were able to do on offense this is what they were a- able to do on defense um and, and so forth what I th- what I think about in the 20 24 years that Bill Belichick was there in New England is is that Belichick's ability to to take the lessons that were learned from um, from the previous year, and to be able to apply it to um, to the following year, is that a fair assessment in terms of just his encyclopedic memory and his ability to take those lessons that were learned from the year prior, whether you won or not, and be able to apply it to the um, to the new season? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think you know when you have as much experience as Bill does, and uh, you know the 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 times he had with the Lions, you know the going way way back, right, and then the mm. uh, the Browns days, and then obviously his stuff with the Giants. And I mean, I have timeline correct here. I think there was a Colts time there, whatever. But the point is, it was just little varied perspective. Like he'd seen so many different things and been around so many different high level coaches, and is a bit of a sponge. It's kind of how he is. He's a he's a little socially inept, but uh, he's you know. <laughs> But he's a cool dude, but just in sort of a quirky way. But he he's in the room. He's soaking it up, right? And he's been in a lot of big-time rooms. And, and I think that's probably one of the things that's most misunderstood about Bill. Um, just the notion that, you know, that that sort of derogative uh, – the derogatory uh, sort of idea of someone being the smartest guy in the room or whatever, right? I think mm-hmm. people presume that Bill is just – I'm the smartest football guy here and you're all below me or something. Now, Bill is like, Bill is like constantly studying, constantly looking at other people's stuff, uh, soaking it all in and, and learning like, and that's, you know, it's an expression that I, I went to Babson when I got done in the NFL. And we, one of the big things they would always talk about is, you know, it's super important in life to be successful. You never want to, if you think you are the smartest guy in the room, you actually might be. And that means you're in a fucked up room. Like you mm. need to, you need to, you mm. need to go find better rooms, right? And I really do think that that's 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 Bill, right? I think people think that he just walks in and expects everyone to bend knees to him. He's he's a collaborator, and it's been really annoying, obviously, to hear sort of the idea that he needed to be more collaborative. I mean, that's always been his style. Like he defers all the time. Uh, I'm not, I don't know the personnel side and how those decisions are made necessarily, but from the coaching side. 
Like he's a, he's a work with his guys kind of guy. And so when you talk about like referring back to old things, like he's the ultimate, okay, you know, a, a coordinator that I respect, you know, in a group that we, we study a lot, maybe we face him several times. They do some things very similar to us and this, this caused them problems. And now we get our bite at the apple. We can't, you know, sort of recreate their mistakes. But he was always really good at just finding out what was relevant from other stuff going on in the league. Uh, you know, like you got to watch our game. You got to break down our tape. You got to figure out what we did wrong and mm. and, and move forward. But you don't want to miss the lesson in that, you know, Colts Dolphins game that also happened where there's going to be five or six plays that are actually probably pertinent, things we're going to need to know for later and the way that they'll apply or try to use that against us. So that was kind of his shtick, right? Like he saw us and he was good at seeing us, the best at seeing us. But, you know, he was seeing everything as well. And like, he just didn't miss much. And I think that's, that's what, you know, always made him unique. This past season, it was, it was a trying one for, for the Patriots in every sense of the word. There's no, there's no way to sugarcoat it. And when you, when you haven't, haven't been in the NFL locker room, and when you hear stories of the dysfunctions that that's that, that took place this past season, whether it be among like the players and the, the Mac Jones saga, um, and as and as well as just what according to the media, I don't know how true it is, it just seemed to be that there was a rift between the quarterback and the head coach, and as well as like the obviously the controversy as to like who who's gonna start is gonna be uh, Mac Jones or, or Bailey Zappi and so forth. In your view, what went wrong for the Patriots this season? And is it as simple as quarterback play, or do you think that there were other underlying factors as well? It's a two-year thing, and that's something that I got I got more acclimated to this kind of frame of mind during sort of maybe the second half of my years at Nesson because we were, you know, you're asked to do wagering segments, right? You're supposed to, you know, you're, you're going to make recommendations to people. That's real money involved. You don't want to just say some BS, right? Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's important that when you start to study trends, you start to understand what's going on in other places and you sort of divorce yourself from the common things that people say, the narrative stuff. Uh, and, and I think one of the biggest of those that you learn, like, you know, I need to know. So take the Patriots out of this equation. I need to know what's going to happen in this upcoming game. I want to make an educated guess. I want to prepare myself. I want to talk about it because we're going to do a show on it, right? If you tell me these two things are happening, I, I can, I've gotten many, many steps towards a res, to, to knowing how this is going to end than, than anything else that people are going to talk about. And it's O-line health and quarterback play. And I, I it's something that happened to them for two years. I don't have an answer to why it is. Uh, but for two seasons, um, you know, the, the 2022 season and the 2023 season, mm -hmm. they were at or near the top within the top few slots of snaps missed at the offensive line. And mm -hmm. it, whatever else you can spin yourself in circles about stories going on with a team, take that profile of a team that you know each year each go through every every nfl season and go through those top few teams that have that issue and they have a quarterback that's not good enough like they're you know he's 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 had shown some promise but he's not at that sort of franchise level he's struggling quite a bit he's turning the ball over like crazy you take in 
offensive line snaps miss for whatever your intended was. And I think most the consensus was here for really the last previous two seasons. If they'd have had their group of five and gotten them for, you know, <laughs> at least maybe 14 of those 16 games. But yeah. it was snaps miss, chaos in the offensive line, and a quarterback that wasn't good enough. You take that two combinations and – you know, we we gotta we gotta find something to talk about for five months, and we always talk about other shit. But that's yep. it. Like you, <laughs> you, 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 you can't win with that scenario when you're, especially with a group that was so dependent on running the football. And this is sort of like a little three-year time capsule lesson. But when Josh had the success he had with Mac, yeah. he had a healthy Damian Harris. Damian Harris had the best year of his career. He had like thirteen touchdowns or something like that. Yep. He was a be- he was a beast, and he was and he was paired with Ramondi. Was this up and coming new dude? And it was a great one too healthy offensive line so all the issues people always talk about this like oh he had three three offensive coordinators in three years no he had one year of healthy offensive line play the oc was different yeah sure whatever but then he had two without it <laughs> you know so the healthy line play doesn't just have to do with protections because we saw mac screw up endlessly with plays where the protection wasn't the issue just blowing the read of the throw uh and I think what happens, you know, I didn't play quarterback. I'll just look at it from the look in the other direction. When a team can't run the football consistently, when they can't get, you know, first downs on third and three, when they don't get three plus on first down, when they choose to run, when they are second and eight and they only get one, right? Mm. You put yourself in these third and longer situations. None of those teams do well. None of them do well, right? And that was what the Patriots did with Mac. And it wasn't because Mac was coached better. It wasn't because Mac was supported better. They were able, they had a healthier offensive line, and they got ahead of the sticks far more frequently. And uh, they could also run the ball in the red zone. And that's super important. Teams that run pretty well up to the 40, and then they get into the high red, and all of a sudden they can't move it down low, they don't score. And when you throw into that a quarterback who's, you know, it just in candor, if we'd have gone, it's not to knock the guy, I think it's just a factual matter. If, you, if you'd have taken the 10 sort of ugliest interceptions you saw in the NFL this year, like just the 10, like, whoa, like, whoa. Not, not just saying yeah. hey, defensive player made a play. You took the 10 plays, like, damn, what the hell what was that? The Patriots quarterback had five of them. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I mean, that, and that's not, hey, the protection, hey, the whatever. It was like unrelated to that. So you throw all those things in the mix, nobody is being successful. And I'm, it's, it has nothing to do with Mac, it has nothing to do with any of the names involved. You put that profile on the field offensive line chaos, no continuity not the reps that you expected to get out of the guys. You know, you write tackles a midseason change over the year prior. Marcus Cannon, stud, had a huge, awesome career. He basically came out of retirement, came off his couch to try to help, you mm, know. Yeah. And then you have, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to they try to move their left tackle from the year prior to right tackle. He gets injured and he's playing guard. Like, in now he's in Miami as a guard. Like, it's just that those are the things that you can't win with. You can't. So um, I, I look at, it's kind of that, like, you know, see the forest, of the, but for the trees kind of idea. Like, yeah. that's the stuff that happened. And, and I think some of the best lessons are really, okay, if, if you don't buy that analysis and think it's just, you know, too much bagging on them or making excuses or something like for the coaching staff, look around the league. Look around the NFL. Uh, the, the Rams win the Super Bowl. The Rams come back, lose their quarterback, have a bunch of health issues himself. They go and become a 5-12 and 12 team. And they're – Quarterback comes back. Those health issues aren't as much of an issue the next year. They're now a playoff team. That's it. Like it's it. <laughs> like I mean, <laughs> Sean McVay. Sean McVay, when they were five and twelve, didn't become a bad play caller. Sean McVay didn't call worse plays than the year before. 
Sean McVay didn't have Sean McVay didn't have his guy. And and the reality of the situation in the NFL is nobody wins. Not not Bill. It's not, and that's not a knock on Bill Belichick. It's not. If you give him a sub-starter level quarterback, uh, he's not going to win. Nobody does. And so that's the unfortunate part. Bill, I think, got hit with a perfect storm. Maybe some of it could have been controlled with a little better depth sort of work, mm. I guess, in free agency mm. or something. Maybe they were a little unprepared with their next wave of guys. You know, or they, they opted young. And, and some of those young guys look really good. Maybe just didn't weren't quite there the worst September or October. Shoot, I feel like ridiculous even saying that. I know what I felt like in September, October, my first year. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going on. Like you're confused, you know, like you're just getting yeah. the hang of this stuff. So I think they got it's the perfect storm. Is an offensive line in disarray for two seasons and a quarterback that couldn't stop turning the ball over unprompted. Mm. Nobody wins that way. Nobody wins that way. The Patriots are gonna have pick number three in this upcoming April's NFL draft. And there's so much discussion as to what the Patriots should do, who should they draft at number three. And for an organization that in which that right now it's abundantly clear they need a quarterback. But I I this is part of the reason why I'm so excited to speak with you on this particular topic. And I want to pick your brain on it, is the Patriots have a laundry list of, of needs. It's not just one particular area, but they have a laundry list of needs. You have the third overall pick in this April's NFL draft. Matt, who do you target and why? So I I try to back into this conversation and, and think of it as – think of it from – put yourself in you've just been named general manager of this team. I know they're not using that title here, right? Yeah. Say say it's not the Patriots. So, again, you can divorce yourself from any thoughts of being you know persuaded by fandom or something like that. You're the new general manager and you're the new head coach of, you know, the, the San Jose Stallions. We'll just make up a yeah. team, right? The, the point yeah. of this is if you have the profile of a team without a starting quarterback, you, you've, you've determined through evaluation, a, a long three-year eval, there were some positives, absolutely, but just not enough there. And you're, for the first time in 24 years at this part of the draft. Mm-hmm. I get that there are other needs. Of course there's other needs, right? I mean, uh, Trent Brown has been excellent, but he's been inconsistent with availability, and it it seems to be, is he on board or not? I don't know. Does he want to be here? Who knows, right? Maybe. Mm. I don't know. But they're all. it's also a super-duper important position, left tackle. And, you know, it's the kind of ones where you look around the league and the teams that are really stable – probably have that guy either as a high first rounder that they nailed or a second contract that's in a big money paying them 15 million a year kind of thing right mm-hmm. there aren't really many half step teams where it's kind of like them kind of do there's a ton of positives but there's some negatives let's do a one-year deal let's do a two-year deal people aren't doing that with their left tackles much and having a lot of success so mm-hmm. it might be the year where they got to make a decision on that side right um all I'm getting at here, though, is if you're that sort of hypothetical team that has to make that call and it's your job on the line, you got to get quarterback. And, and the and the reason I say that is just watch watch the carousel, watch the coaches and general managers that come and go in this league. Uh, the only one you can probably come up with right now where he had a guy and still lost the gig was Staley in in, yeah. in L.A. There aren't very many other guys who are – most of them are losing the job and they're also changing the personnel at that quarterback spot. 
So I, I think it's an incredible risk if you're in that position to say, you know what, let's go use the third overall pick on a left tackle, or let's go use the third overall pick on a wide receiver. You might get yourself an excellent one of either of those two things. But if Trent Brown had not been there this year, and he played at a super high level for maybe two-thirds of his games, you know, highly graded out for the people to, to watch the PFF stuff and all that, or just, yeah. you know, super solid, sometimes absolutely dominant. dominant. But fine, trade him out. Trade him out, pretend like this year didn't happen, and put whoever it is you think should be the third or third overall pick, which might be the first guy. Maybe it's the guy from Notre Dame, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. Put him in that spot, replay the season. What happens different? I, I don't know. Not, not, not much. Is there a game better? Maybe. I don't know. Cause he plays all 17 instead. I, I don't know. Is it that much difference? Maybe not. And then people make the argument, obviously for Harrison as the wide receiver, mm-hmm. of course there'll be more explosive plays. And, it, but that's the Lamborghini position. Sometimes the Lamborghini breaks down, you know, so it's not, you don't usually take teams that are, Hey, we're a nine and seven team. And you know what? We're now a 14 and two team. Because we changed wide, you know, we we improved at that one spot. I know people use the Stephon Diggs example of some team that really, really jetted forward, uh, but there was a lot of. Uh, I think there was other factors. It was a really good defense at that time as well. So it is a little bit of both. But my point is this: you would not want to be that general manager and be sitting here in year two or year three, still looking at that guy because that one moment you got at the top, you just said, "Hey, well, you know, we'll, we'll develop the fourth quarterback in this class or the fifth quarterback in the class. We'll develop a guy." Because if you're wrong and still looking for that guy and you're eight and seven, or I'm sorry, eight and nine in these days, or you're, you know, a little under 500 right around at, you know, 10 and eight or something, probably not keeping your job. You're not. And what will keep you your job is nailing that quarterback pick. And that doesn't mean that you have to take it with a third overall. I mean, you could hypothetically trade back, but, and, but you need to address it and you need to hit. You need to hit because the reality, I think, of those gigs in this day and age. If you don't hit on quarterback, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, you have to draft the all pro, but you need to, you need to draft the guy who's going to be worth a second contract, who's franchise level, somebody that someday you can pay 30 or 40 or $50 million a year, because that's the world we live in. If you don't have that guy, you're part of that percentage of the teams that are still looking and your job security is low. So I think there's a sequence to things. You do build teams from the inside out. And I think that that saying to people typically makes them think line play, right? And that's part of it. And it's super huge. But quarterback's under center right in the middle of it, right? So (laughs) (laughs) the the inside-out stuff, it involves him, right? Because for real, in this particular season, the Patriots wouldn't be drafting third overall if they'd have better quarterback play. They wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they'd have been a playoff team because the roster was decimated with injuries. But there are three, four, maybe more games difference without all those turnovers there really are and just finishing some drives because this games in this league they come down to a score too it's not it's not that dramatically different from what looks like good enough and just really really bad it's not as long as far as you think so my view is this i mean people will always point to hey sometimes the you know the second oftentimes the second overall taking quarterback isn't necessarily a star i get that right so uh maybe you take the third I think when you start looking at sort of historical uh, rounds of quarterbacks and sort of the history of sort of classes, the further you go down the class, the risk of that or the likelihood of that not being hit increases dramatically. Maybe you get Brock Purdy. I mean, okay, but you're not in a situation where you a staff basically lost their job uh, because they didn't have a guy. So you're going to have to swing high. And I think that means they'll probably take 
either, you know, the second or third available dude. And that's just my best guess. And if they don't, I'm telling you, if they say, hey, you know, we can get away with taking a tackle receiver there. Now you're looking at the fourth. Now you're maybe looking at the fifth or the sixth of a class or you're spending high on a, on you know, on a, on a Kirk Cousins or Mayfield kind mm. of situation. And then you're also shopping again two years from now. It's just it's just real risky, man. And I the way I always think of it is it ain't to win a sports debate. It ain't to win some shit at the, at the water cooler. It's to keep your job. <laughs> I think exactly. you got to nail the quarterback eval and you got to get one house, get one in-house, and then you build a team around that. That's my view. I know we're up against, so just have one last question to ask you. And there, there's, there was a general consensus going into um, like the coaching carousel, or should I say coaching free agency, yeah. um, that Bill Belichick, he, he'll be snatched up, probably the first thing snatched off the market, no big deal, easy peasy. Here we are in February, nine days before the Super Bowl, and all of the head coaching openings are now filled. How surprising is it to you that Bill Belichick as of right now is how surprising is it for you that Bill Belichick is still looking for a head coaching job in the NFL at this point in juncture? How surprising is it to you? So I think this really goes more to the psychology of owners uh, these days than it does to Bill's acumen or ability or what he could have done for a team. Mm. I think if you look at all the firings around the NFL, um, and, and let's let's we need to kind of separate the idea of what someone would do for you and what he might cost. Bill, and this is my presumption, of course, I'm not a part of any negotiations he had thus far, but Bill is going to be a top of market cost guy. And a lot of owners know that when you go out and get a first time uh, guy, they don't cost as much. Now, we don't get to sort of the grist mill of evaluation of contracts and things like that that we get to do with, you know, free agency wide receiver, the free agency quarterback or free agency defensive end or corner or whatever. We get to have those debates and talk about it. But coaches' contracts are pretty are, are pretty uh, kept under wraps. Mm. And the reality of the situation is if you're coming in and talking about a, a guy that will be 72 years old and we've seen contracts already in this particular coaching cycle go for six-year deal. Six-year deal, right? No. Uh, now, Bill's probably not being offered that, but who knows what Bill's asking for, right? So I think when when all we know that when someone didn't hire him doesn't know what his position was, what his ask was, personnel control, which has obviously been beat around a lot, but what he needed from them much more than what they needed back, that's why I think the passing comes from because you're not going to get away with paying Bill Belichick, which you can pay Mike McDonald. You're not, right? And you get to keep it secret what you didn't do because you're saying to that first-time head coach, first time you get a shot here, oh, you know, you want, you know, I'll give you, you know, three guaranteed years or something like that. But the point is they don't have nearly as much leverage. They're thrilled to get that first gig. Bill's got all these rings. Bill's not in that situation. He's got eight Super Bowl rings, six as a head coach. He's won more, you know, games than all but one dude. Uh, so he's in a different negotiating position and they're on the other side of it going, damn, um, I don't know where Bill's going to be at two years mm -hmm. from now or three years from now. Can I offer him a three or four year contract? You know what? He's got a lot of leverage sitting opposite me and he wants the world. And uh, I'm this, you know, I'm scared that if I don't like how things go with Bill two years from now, that I might be paying an extra year at a big number and then shopping for an entire new staff, you know? 
So he had a lot of stuff working against him beyond just, dude, that's the best coach in the NFL. Because it is. And that never stops being true. And not being not being signed right now doesn't mean that, you know, it, it's not two people were shopping, right? There's not, there's not, there's not a guy, you know, like asking for porridge going, please, sir, can I have your job? It's a guy evaluating you while you're evaluating him. And, and, and they, they didn't find a meeting of the minds. And honestly, I didn't think a lot of the vacancies, you know, the idea of, okay, of course, someone's going to snatch up bill. That's what everyone thought. I've thought it too. But then you start going, you know, situation by situation and going, Hmm. You know, actually, some of the, the the most appealing ones might be teams that actually still have their coach. You know, like like mm. Philly or like Dallas. Like, yeah. And and those those actually might be more appealing for him because he might be looking at going. Wait a minute, you know, like Carolina or even Atlanta. I know some people feel strongly about their roster. I, I do a little less so, but if you have uncertainty going into a situation, I don't know. Like, how appealing is that to someone at his age who's like? kind of looking for what Tom was looking like or for, mm. excuse me. I mean, yeah. what was Tom's situation looking around? No, he didn't get offered by 10 teams. Why? Because 10 teams didn't know if they'd be again, like we had the conversation earlier about the third overall pick, picking yeah. another quarterback, right? Mm -hmm. So the quarterbacks, they're shopping for the quarterback. The quarterback needs that one situation. Like where's the team that's really close that I can take him across the line and just do this for a couple of years. And, and Tom found that place. And I think Bill was at a bit of a disadvantage because He's kind of shopping for that place. And even if Bill, and again, none of us know this. I don't know this, certainly. We don't know that he went into the room and said, I'm going to coach five more years. He he may have said that. I mean, he's he's a diehard. Like, he, he hasn't put any I'm going to stop coaching at X age thing out there. He hasn't done that. But you have to remember the other side of the table. It's an owner that's gone. Okay. Um, I don't think Bill's necessarily bringing along the guy that I'll hire a successor. At least I haven't seen him yet, right? So I'm going to get Bill, amazing Bill. I'm sure he'll turn it around for me. But what am I doing again in two years, right? Do I have to bring in, do all this over again and not have a guy in-house? And I don't know. I just, I, I kind of get that this was another, that same phrase again, perfect storm to where you kind of see why it didn't happen. And with Dallas holding tight and Philly holding tight, those teams that are, High high caliber, but plateauing. That's the place you put Bill. Man, I mean, he's just gonna yeah, he's gonna crush it. Um, not that he couldn't help any situation. Of course he could, but the appeal I think has to be the same for both sides. And I don't think that was necessarily the case in all of these. And you kind of understand. I don't think I agree with them passing, but you might yeah. understand what the rationale for why they may have. Absolutely. I want to say thank you um, so much, um, Matt, Matt, uh, Matt Adam, three time Super Bowl champion. Former NFL uh, linebacker, a part of Patriots Dynasty 1.0. Thank you so much, man, for taking the time and continue to kill it on the grill. And wait, <laughs> by the way, your Twitter makes me hungry, by the way. I just want to let you know that up front. So okay, I'm blaming yeah. you for having a massive appetite right now. <laughs> but it but it is an honor and a privilege to have the chance to speak with you, Matt. Thank you so much uh, for the time and for hopping on the on the Hub of Champions podcast. All right, my pleasure. We're actually going to be out in Vegas for the Super Bowl uh, with my company, Rub Smoke Love. We're out there for the, uh, what do they call it? The culinary kickoff, the NFL's culinary kickoff. And so uh, celebrity chefs from all over the country, other NFL, NFL cities are coming out and uh, they're cooking. It's almost sort of like a chopped kind of thing where mm. they're taking some 
of our products and going to make a surprise meal for for the people at the culinary kickoff. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. So yeah, everything in life now is all about my you know my rubs, beefcake, and gold bark, and uh, and uh, that kind of life. So that's uh, that's what we're into these days. Absolutely, I look forward to hearing more about it. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.